these cars started going by all, all the time. And, and, and it, what we started to figure out was that there were these like stick up crews and they were looking at our lights and our cameras and all this stuff. And they would just go by and case us. Right. And this wasn't the first time they, they we were the only thing shooting in, I think probably the only thing shooting in Philly this summer. So everyone wow. kind of knew about this little film. I think I ended up calling 911 more, more times in that night than I've called them ever in my life. Like collectively, like, like, I think I called them six times. Welcome to The Practical Filmmaker, an educational podcast brought to you by the Filmmaker Institute and Sunscreen Film Festival, where industry professionals talk nuts and bolts and the steps they took to find their success today. On today's show, indie film producer Jeff Kwan talks about the indie space as a director of production management for the original indie film team at Netflix. Find the full transcripts and more at thepracticalfilmmaker.com. I'm your host, Tanya Musgrave, and today we have indie producer Jeff Kwan, a director of production management for the original indie film team at Netflix, whose works include Casey Affleck's Light of My Life, Six Balloons, Blind Spotting, which premiered at Sundance in 2018, and Netflix biopic drama, Barry. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tanya. Thanks for having me. Jeff, you've got eight features under your belt now. I want to take you back fresh out of film school or even what got you into film school. How did you get where you are today? So you did mention I, I went to film school. I was at Columbia. I got my MFA there. I started production in New York in, the, in sort of the New York indie film scene, kind of bopping around, trying to taking a lot of production survival jobs. Um, but so I was sort of doing this thing at the time where I would take like production gigs on like bigger things, that, you know, PA and coordinating. But at the same time, I was trying to get my experience as a, as a producer, as a sort of a capital P creative producer. And so I, to start off with, I took a couple of tiny micro budget features. And those were the first things that I made as a producer. I mean, yeah, there were two of them where it was like $100,000 in the can, like just absolutely tiny, like the sort of thing where you benefit from not knowing what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, it was the kind of thing where, you know, I was my own location manager and I was my own accountant and I was my own, <laughs> own first, first AD, just stuff where you didn't have it. And it kind of like only later uh, yeah. as I got into my career, I was like, oh, right, there's, there's a person for that, or there's even yeah. a department for that thing. Yeah. But from there, what ended up happening, because I had to do all of those things, I was working on these, these tiny features that were incredibly under-resourced. And so having to kind of pick up all of these practical skills along the way to make those things happen. I started getting approached to be a production manager or a line producer on these other other movies. So I was like, oh, you have these very sort of practical pieces. Mm -hmm. And that led me to other movies where I was taking learning as a production manager in this sort of idea of having a skill set where I could learn a lot, take on bigger projects that have presented bigger challenges where the problems themselves were not just a function of that we had absolutely no money, right? Because that, that, mm -hmm. not that that's not challenging, but at a certain point that became sort of variations on a theme almost mm -hmm. where it's like, okay, okay, you just have no money. So how do you solve this? Or you have, you have to like beg, borrow and steal for whatever. So how do you solve this? <laughs> it's okay. With a little bit of money, yeah. which means probably, you know, bigger, a bigger sort of creative palette. Like you're telling different types of stories that have different types of requirements. How do you then solve that stuff? Mm -hmm. That led me down the path of production management, line producing, and eventually getting back to producing. And so it was kind of like a kind of this full circle sort mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why have you gravitated towards producing and not, you know, something so another role? Did you always gravitate towards producing? I I did, and it and it was an interest. I think it really in process and and in team building. I liked understanding how how to make something something that was really complex and complicated, mm -hmm. and with a lot of moving parts. And had this I also this real interest in. When you put teams of people together, what is, what is that alchemy that happens when you have an incredible team, right? Yeah, and that, yeah. that sometimes it's a little bit of magic and a little bit of luck and circumstances, but you also have to work really hard at it because 
great teams don't just happen. I had come from a completely different field prior to film. So I was working in, in design and sort of oh. got, got this interest there, right? Because I was yeah. working with large design teams. Okay. It was sort of the wrong format for me, like the wrong medium in terms of the actual work. <laughs> yeah. But knew enough about myself and what I really would really derive sort of satisfaction and pleasure from in that to say, okay, well, if that's the wrong thing, but I like this process thing mm -hmm. that spoke to me is, is what I eventually learned was like, oh, that's producing. You mentioned micro budget features, and now you've kind of gotten up to uh, features that can actually handle a crew and a cast. And sure. I mean, you have top build cast and, you know, I mean, like fantastic talent there. As you grew as a producer, did you have to, I mean, like, for instance, did you have to be part of a union? Is it still all technically like indie? Like, do you, are you part of the, the union? So I'm, I'm part of the director's guild. So okay. um, within the director's guild, you know, obviously there is the director, yeah. um, but it's also what's called the director's team, uh, uh -huh. which consists of a unit production manager, uh, first AD, second AD, second, second, and, and, and yeah. depending on a couple of other positions, depending on where you are. Mm -hmm. I got in as a UPM on a movie called Ride, which was directed by Helen Hunt. Uh, it was a oh, okay. surfing movie that we shot in LA. Once you get beyond a certain point, most movies tend to be in the guild. And so it was a way for me to mm -hmm. continue to grow and participate in bigger, bigger, more complex movies and stories. Yeah. A huge bit of filmmaking that always seems to be a mystery is distribution. Sure. Um, I would love to know about the first film, your first film that you sold. I mean, so the two micro budget films we did, we did sell sort of in, in bits and pieces. It was, it was also bits and pieces. You got your, uh, <laughs> expand on that. Those things, they were, they were really little made with, you know, virtually no stars, you know, a first time director. So there's not, there wasn't a lot in there to say, we're going to pitch this and somehow it's going to, you know, the pitch was not like, hey, great commercial success, right? <laughs> but yeah, to say that, yeah. that these films represented authentic experiences that for the right, if you could connect them to the right audience, there were going to be people interested in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and and often what that meant for us was that we were having to go and say, we're going to go to a, to particular platforms and sell off particular pieces of rights for that stuff, whether it's by territory or say this is all going to Amazon Prime as an example, or not Apple TV, but sort of the previous version when it was all through iTunes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of stuff. So it was very. That's what I mean by bits and pieces, where it wasn't the sort of okay. thing where we we were not getting a studio payday where somebody's like, I'm going to take all rights in all territories. Uh, in perpetuity throughout the known universe like we were, yeah, we were not yeah. so lucky in that way yeah, yeah i think i think much more typical of the stories you don't often hear was that you know we had to go do that gradually over time and sort of try to build out a distribution plan with the idea of saying you know that there's value in the story but how do we convince people to come find it out and part of it was i think also has been in the last 10 years has really been this glut of content so in some ways like how do you even just find the audience right because it's all there and there's seemingly ever-increasing numbers of titles and, and you know content to find but, yeah. but how do you then cut through and be like how does an audience member find you right and then yeah. and then how do you convince them to be like i'm gonna rent that or i'm gonna buy it so i mean you mentioned in the last 10 years there's been like a whole slew of changes within the industry what did you learn in that space like for instance like the first film that you sold versus the first film that you sold maybe to a streaming platform or like or was it was the first one already on a streaming platform they were already on streaming platforms when we when we sold them the difference is partly is is the model now in some ways right you you know if you look at where most viewers are now mm -hmm. they're in these sort of subscription-based models whether it's it's yeah. netflix or you're on hbo max or, or apple mm -hmm. tv or one of those right where mm -hmm. it's like the transaction is a, is like is a time-based one i'm i'm 
I have a monthly subscription that renews yeah. versus yeah. A, a single transaction and more akin to a, a movie ticket, right? Which was what sort of the old digital model was. It's like, I'm going to rent this movie, mm-hmm. but instead of getting a, a video cassette or a DVD, it, it comes <laughs> to me as a digital file that I have to, to watch in the next 48 hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that sort of thing. And I, and I think with that, there, you know, certainly, you know, so much about the ecosystem has grown in its sophistication mm-hmm. uh, of how, you know, what, what's on those platforms, how it's merchandised to you, they, just the experience of, of watching those things in that environment. That's, that's all radically changed in the last 10 years. You had mentioned before that uh, Six Balloons was one of the first wave, uh, like as in before the, we were chatting before we actually started recording, but uh, the Six <laughs> <Secrets>. Balloons. <laughs> secrets, secrets. Well, I'm about to like tell the secret, I guess, but oh. like, it's not really a secret. No. Six Balloons was one of the first, you said, uh, cash flow films of Netflix's indie department. It was how you came to Netflix. I was working as an independent producer and you know, line producer for 10 years. And this is sort of from the end of film school to where, you know, when I started at Netflix and I've been here for about four years. As part of that, I ended up making two films for the team that I now work for. One of them is Six Balloons, which you mentioned. And at the time, Netflix, before they, you know, they're now known for all of their original content, but uh, there was a time period in which they were, the idea of being in a digital space, a streaming space was really new. And so they were looking to build, build their catalog. So they would license and acquire titles. Yeah and, yeah. and and at a certain point they flipped, flipped that or started to experiment with, well, what would it be like if we made our own? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so six, six balloons was one of this first wave of independent features that Netflix cash flow produced. And so they, I was hired in to help make that mm-hmm. film for them. Knowing what you do now, like even as a filmmaker, how does all of your experience inform what you look for in projects? To you, for you as a filmmaker? Part of what I'd always set out to do, and, and I feel very fortunate to have done, whether it's the films that I've produced or the things I've gotten to help make while at Netflix, is just the variety and diversity of, of that. I, you know, I, as a filmmaker, as a producer of color, I feel like, you know, there, there's a responsibility there to be telling stories that reflect what our world looks like. And I think, you know, fair to say that for a long time in, in at least American cinema, that's not always been the case. Mm-hmm, uh, and mm-hmm. and part of what I've loved about being a producer is that there have been incredible, authentic, original stories that if I was in a different role, I would not be the right voice to tell that story. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I see the role as a producer is sometimes to be the facilitator mm-hmm. uh, and, and to say that I can do that. And so I think one of the things that I, I look at with that is that when I look at material, it's always about the authenticity of the voice, the authenticity of the story. And oftentimes it's led me to be able to participate in really incredible projects mm-hmm. where we may not have seen that before, but, it, but if I can bring my sort of skill set to that, then, then that feels like that's my contribution. So something yeah, like, yeah. like blind spotting is, is a good example of this. Yeah. One of the things that I have always kind of been curious about whenever I talk to somebody And, you know, this is a hard, it's a hard industry, you know, there's always a why, like, why is it like, what is your passion about? Like, specifically, what is it that keeps you in this particular industry? And I've always wondered, like, hey, what is it? Is it, is it inclusion of voices, you know, that kind of thing, the passion. So maybe that's my next question. What is your why? I think certainly it's it's part of it is what I, we already talked about a little bit is is that inclusion is that sort of diversity is. Now, I remember watching things growing up where like having very specific moments of seeing what I felt like was a reflection of the life I knew and the family I had and the culture I, I come from mm-hmm. on screen because it didn't happen that often. Right. Uh, I think I think that <laughs> I, I think that. that I think that's certainly part of it. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> I get that. Uh, I think that's been part of it. I think also partly I like the puzzle. 
right? Like mm -hmm. I think as, as a producer, there is the puzzle of having to go out and figure out something that's ambitious and challenging and just being like, oh, I haven't done that before. And I want to do something I haven't done before and be challenged in that way. Let me go figure that out. Uh -huh. Which I think is like both like, the really rewarding part and sometimes it can also be the incredibly daunting part of it too yeah the learning process there's a lot that goes wrong that's how we actually learn so i think those are the i think honestly that those yeah. those are the best lessons right because those yeah. are the ones you never you never forget you do it wrong once you're like oh i'm not doing it that way ever <laughs> again it was too it was too painful or too expensive or both yeah. <laughs> well all right so tell me some things about when what went wrong what lessons have you learned the hard way Oh man. I mean, that's a good, <laughs> like where, where to begin. Um, Which breath of air. I think one of the things that I, I, I learned, I've learned and been reminded of over and over again is there's the challenge of how you pick a project, right? Which we've talked about a little bit sometimes. Yeah. So many factors that can go into that decision, whether it's economics, like, Hey, this, this helps me pay my rent or helps me save towards my, my next project or whatever that is. Right. Yeah. There, there's this idea of, opportunity where it might lead there's you know whether it's like networking into something or something you feel like has got potential maybe you're learning something but there's lots of different factors in how you sort of like like rank order that stuff mm -hmm. a good example is getting a project where like hey i could take a really big thing and be you know somebody's assistant or a junior uh, a junior member of that team or i could take a much smaller thing but have a much more senior role how do you how do you stack those two things up against each other yeah right yeah and what I kind of learned the hard way, uh, I made the mistake of picking material over people. And it was this it was this sort of thing where I picked a few projects early on in my career where the people that I was working with, we we were not the right fit for each other. And that was as much on me as it was on on them, right? We had different working styles. We had different communication styles. We had, mm. we had different conflict resolution styles, which is a huge <laughs> part of, of filmmaking. Oh, my stars, I, yes. Because I also think that when you make films, like everyone can be polite and on their best behavior for a coffee or, a, you know, that, that first meet and greet. But when you make movies with each other, like you are, you see each other more than you see your families, right? Hell like, yeah. and at some point that, that polite facade, it, mm -hmm. it's too much work to keep it up all the time. And you, mm -hmm. I think everyone sort of defaults to who they are in terms of like, this is how I deal with conflict. Yeah. This is how, I, what I'm like when I'm stressed or I'm tired or I'm hangry or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and if you don't, if you don't vibe with that other person that way, if you're not compatible, mm -hmm. that's not a great fit, right? Yeah. I did the thing where I picked, I ignored some of that stuff mm. and picked, I was like, I love this material or I, man, I, I, you know, I love the idea of working with this person. Mm. The lesson there was like the material on the projects will change people in my view, at least mm. less so. Right. And mm -hmm. so it's like, you have to find the right people because this stuff is really hard. This stuff is really hard, even when you're making it with people that you love and trust, right? Like, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. you, you, you take that away and it gets infinitely more challenging. How about a specific story when something went wrong, either either as a producer, because I, I, I helped produce a micro budget feature this summer and I, my stars, you want to talk about the things that went wrong? I mean, your job as producer is to deal with the stuff that goes wrong. So, I mean, yes, there is a lot. But I, if there's a particularly juicy story of something that went wrong to make every every listener feel better about their life. I, okay, so I will, I, will tell, I will tell a story from one of those micro-budget features. Okay. So uh, right. one of the very first features I made was this. My quidditch feature set in the, the the punk rock scene in in Philadelphia, and I, I don't. Prior to this, I knew nothing about the punk rock scene in Philadelphia, but sort of like 
thrash underground bands hosting like parties in, in the basements of row houses kind of kind of stuff and and you know for a hundred thousand dollars as you can imagine we made it for no money i slept in the house that was the main set like on an inflatable mattress that deflated every night and would like go to <laughs> go to sleep above the ground and wake up on a thin layer of rubber that was on the ground it's every every night you know kind of thing i mean it was a really tough physical shoot you know a, 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 myself included in this, like a barely professional crew, kind of yeah. non-professional non actors, you know, just understaffed and underrun. And, and we were in Philly at the time and some of the places we were, which was supposed to be real authentic, was not the safest place. So we were shooting in some tougher neighborhoods. Yeah. And on the the last night of the, the shoot, we ended up at a home base in a, a warehouse conversion. It was sort of anomaly, a soundstage, but really it was just a big converted warehouse. Yeah. Uh, and shooting overnight. Our little crew was made, made up mostly of like crew that was just a year out of undergrad kind of thing. Some of them were still in college. We had a couple of interns that were just out of high school kind of thing, like <laughs> incredibly young, no security, which is where I'm going with the story. Oh, but, no. but we're outside shooting or like one of our only night scenes, these cars started going by all, all the time. And, and, and it, what we started to figure out was that there were these like stick up crews and they were looking at our lights and our cameras and all this stuff. And they would just go by and case us, right? And this wasn't the first time. They, they We were the only thing shooting in, I think probably the only thing shooting in Philly this summer. So everyone wow. kind of knew about this little film. I think I ended up calling 911 more more times in that night than I've called them ever in my life, like collectively. Oh. Like, like, I think I called them six times. What? They kept coming for us and we didn't know. And it, look, it sounds horrible. Like we, you know, we, we, we felt like we were, you know, we kept trying to, it was our last night where I had to, had to finish the movie kind of thing. Oh my gosh. It, but it got to the, it got to the point where like at some point I found, we found ourselves on the roof of the, of the, the soundstage, the quote soundstage, yeah. peering over the roof, watching like the, the, the minivans with the 15 year olds, kids that had guns and were oh, going to take, yes. take what they wanted oh from gosh. us. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my stars! <laughs> and then you just didn't go to sleep. You, there's no point for the mattress we, anymore we, because you just no, like, look, sleep. we we at some point at some point we stopped and waited for the sun to come up and had to wait for the sun to come up before we could walk out of the building. You know, it's not dark out. It's you know, everyone else has gone to bed. We are safe. We can leave. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have slept. My adrenaline would be going so much. No, 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 absolutely not. No. <laughs> oh my word! So you had mentioned that you know it's a pretty young crew, uh, non actors Actors, uh, that actually kind of leads into one of the listener questions uh, sure. from our Instagram at Practical Filmmaker. I'd like to hear lessons you learned at the pivot point between working with non-actors and then big name actors for Top Build Cast. That's a really good one. I mean, because I've even had projects in the middle between that where I had a couple of projects where we cast a mix. Uh -huh. I made a movie with a director named Justin Tipping. It was, it was called Kicks. It was about mm -hmm. sort of um, being sneakerheads in, in, in school. And it was a mix of non-professional actors and professional actors. We, it, it was sort of intentional. We were shooting up in the Bay Area, which is where I grew up. I wanted to really represent, in some ways, give back to the neighborhoods in which we were, were shooting a little bit. And that was partly was connecting with the community and providing some opportunities. And, you know, and that there were these sort of vibrant artistic communities there kind of in, in these neighborhoods that have been, had a lot of challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we, so we paired everyone up. So part of the, part of the cast was professional, part of the cast was non-professional. And the challenge there obviously was to know sort of where and how to kind of arrange them and coordinate them, knowing that like those actors were coming out with drastically different styles and drastically mm -hmm. different training but how do you make that then feel cohesive and it's not like oh this is the scene where i'm watching a non-actor versus now i'm watching a real actor and have it jar people 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we had to do we had to do a lot of like sort of how do you connect them and make it feel organic. For the non-actors, it was like how do you give make sure that they're doing something within their range, knowing that they don't have necessarily the training, but they have something that raw kind of like authentic thing. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side was taking professional actors and inserting them into this and also saying, okay, well, we don't want to call you out either because you feel like you're not real to the to this world. Yeah. Maybe like non-SAG actors, you know, like the actors that, I mean, they might be professional actors, um, but like, for instance, those who are producing for a an extreme micro-budget feature that, you know, they're not going to have anybody you've actually heard of right. um, versus landing an actor that people have heard of. I think they're talking about that pivot point. In some ways, it, it's having having those actors of note, I think, that what you're talking about it opens a lot of doors and there's, there's such opportunity that can come with that because it, you know, it, it pulls attention and spotlight and focus to, to a film, not only when the film is done, but frankly, when the film is being made, right? Like mm-hmm. in, in some ways having those people on, it gives it kind of this like stamp of approval, right? Where it's like, Oh, if so-and-so is thinks it's good enough that they're going to participate in this, then that, that something's like, Oh, well, that I, I describe it as that thing of like, no one wants to be the first one in the pool. Right. So suddenly you get a big name in there and everyone's like, oh, well, they're doing it. I'm going to jump in, too, because I, I, I like this thing or I think it's, you know, I'm not worried that there's going to be something something weird. The flip side of that sometimes is that there is a lot of opportunity costs. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but it just mm-hmm. in terms of like, you know, for those that are looking and at that point where they're making that transition is, is, is it's more like you just have to be ready for it to know, you know, because suddenly to have a professional to have those professional actors means in some ways you really are running a professional set. And so all of those other pieces that come with it, the the support teams, the crew to make that happen, the the cost obviously that comes with those teams and with the perks that that often big big actors need to do their work. Mm-hmm. So it's it's deceptive in that sometimes you're like, oh man, I got this person, I've, I've made it, or I've done this mm-hmm. thing. It's a little bit, it can be like the tip of the iceberg, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Say filmmakers have this thing now. <laughs> um, <laughs> they need to get people to see this thing. Like I've sure. got this film. What's your best advice for filmmakers and where to position themselves? Like one of the things that a previous guest had mentioned, and when he was dealing with all of his distribution stuff, he was just like, you know, sometimes it's a really flawed model to make the thing first, take the thing to festivals, and hope that you'll get distribution from those festivals. It's um, incredibly flawed. Yes. Why? <laughs> Why is it, it flawed? And what do they do differently then? It's if you think about it just from like the statistical, like an odds standpoint, right? Like you've yeah. got to first you gotta make the you gotta make the thing too, as you said. <laughs> which yeah. is hard enough. Like making the thing to me is like you have to get all of these all of these miracles to line up at the same time, right? You have yeah. the actors that get you your equity, or you have the equity that gets your actors, and you've got yeah. get your locations and your permits and your on and on and on. Yeah, and it's yeah. all and it can't those things can't happen like oh the first one happened in January and the next one happened in March and maybe the next one in yeah. August, right? They all have to happen at the exact same time for you yeah. to do anything with it, right? So that's yeah, the yeah, first yeah. set. Yeah. And then you do that, and then you have to get into those festivals where you actually, at least in in U.S. cinema and American cinema, you can actually go sell the thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is, it's on a huge list, right? Like yeah. you're talking, you know, you're talking Sundance, obviously, you're talking South by. Uh-huh. There's not a lot of that stuff that happens in that way. So you, mm-hmm. so then you have to like scrape. So first you got to make it, then you got to like win the lotto to get into the festival where you could yeah. sell it, and yeah. then you got to and you got to win the lotto again because you sold it, right? So it's yeah. like this, it's like hitting like concentric bullseyes <laughs> yes <laughs> you know in, in a windstorm yeah, exactly. standing like you know like in different galaxies <laughs> right exactly a couple of galaxies away right so yeah. it's 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 just really hard to do and it's not a sustainable business model right like yeah. in a way that you can say for filmmakers to have a sustainable career you have to sort of say 
I look what I do with my first one because it helps me get to my next one. Mm-hmm. And so if you're, if you're saying, okay, if I'm making my first project and the only way I get to my second one is to sell the first one at a festival that I was lucky enough to get into, that I was lucky enough to get a distributor for that makes somehow makes my investors whole. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's chancy. What is the the correct way to go? I mean, cause like, I think, I, I think I had talked to, he was a sales agent and it was the first sales agent that I'd ever talked to in my life. Cause I was just like, mm-hmm. Oh, I, I don't know how any of this works. Cause you know, I, sure. what, what you learn in film school is how to make the thing, you know? Yeah, totally. So you're just like, this is, this is, you know, the, I, I have it right now. What I've done, and I've done, I've won. I've, yay. Yay. I've done, so I've got that lottery and we've got it. Sure. We got it in luck. What would be your advice though, for, for people to like, for where to go after that? So like particular resources that you know of that like, oh, Hey, these people, like they, there are certain roles that actually specifically will, will help you with this. Like, I, and I don't even know what those roles would be. <laughs> yeah. No, I, mean, yeah. I think you already mentioned one that, you know, having, having a sales agent, even just thinking of like uh, of the life cycle of a film, right. And all the people that are, that touch it at various points in its life. Mm-hmm. Like a sales agent is, is at a very particular point in its life in terms of like, it's been made. I mm-hmm. now needs to get to audiences vis-a-vis a distributor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that there are experts that that is their expertise and practice and passions that they yeah. do that piece of it. So they do that piece. I've been in the case and I know a lot, most filmmakers have been in that place where suddenly you've, you find yourself at that moment and there's so much information and there's a lot of fear and trepidation about like, you're supposed to do this. You're not mm-hmm. supposed to do that. It's like, yeah. The worry is that, you know, those people obviously have to make money. The sales agents and those businesses, they're businesses. They, they, mm-hmm. you know, they need to make their own money. Yeah. And so sometimes there's a, oh, I can, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend that. You know, there's a reason you do, and there's a reason they charge you for those things. Yeah. And so I think, I think that's part of it is to actually have those, those folks. You know, another piece of that too, is also to have a publicist. Right. And again, and again, it depends on what, yeah. what you're after and where you are. But again, going back to the comment of like, how to just create awareness around your title that it exists, let alone that, you know, it's interesting and here's what it's about and here's why you might want to go see it. Right. Again, there's experts that is their core practice. If you ask a filmmaker what their film is about Mm -hmm. and why they want to make it, that's not necessarily the same answer as what the publicist will say. This is why it will appeal to people. Right. Uh, Uh, I made a movie several years ago called obvious child. It's a, it's a romantic comedy and there, there's an abortion in it. Like that's the main, the main crux, the, the, Jenny Slate is the star. She she breaks up with her boyfriend, loses her job, and gets pregnant, and then is contemplating an abortion. Right, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a romantic comedy based around those set of circumstances. Yeah. And when we were making the movie, we were it's it's interesting just to watch how we had to change how we talked about it. When we were making the movie, we were so concerned that you know again not a lot of resources we were asking for a lot of favors and help and for people to chip in what they could, and there was a worry that if we you know if it became sort of too too hot button of a, Mm -hmm. or was perceived to be too hot button, people would pull away. We didn't talk about abortion at all. Mm -hmm. Cut to A24 buys it out of Sundance. On the (laughs) one sheet, it's like a romantic comedy about abortion. Like that was, that was the pitch, right? Like it it was a complete, it was a complete 180. So there was this idea of like functionally, what what do we need to talk about? But A24 and obviously that team and saying, okay, well, we're the people selling the movie now. Yeah. This is how we're going to talk about it. so some wow. so it's a, it's just yeah. that thing of like there can be in in that case it's it's very specific in terms of our, our concern, mm-hmm. but it can also be really hard when you spend when you live and breathe a film for years to then mm-hmm. be like what do I have and how do mm-hmm. I talk about it in a way that everyone else is going to be able to approach it right because because mm-hmm. there's that moment too where where a film if it does the thing you want it to do it's not yours anymore it sort of leaves you and then like it becomes everyone else's so they have to be able to enter it on their own and so like having having that publicist to say well here are the points of entry 
Yeah. Okay. About that publicist, the filmmaker that I just interviewed, he like he worked with a publicist for the first time ever. What do you look Mm. for in a good publicist, and where do you find them? (laughs) Because is it like uh, you just like Google, hey publicist? But is it a specific, you know? Because they're entertainment lawyers, right? They're like they're lawyers specifically for this business, right? (laughs) Like obviously, no, there there are specifically film publicists too, in that in that same same way that you know they're all publicists, but there's some that do the the specific thing. Yeah. Oh, hey, you want to find somebody who's actually really genuinely interested in your film, right? Because if their job is to like essentially kind of go out and, and pitch your film and sell your film. You just do better when you have people that actually like what they're talking about, right? <laughs> yeah, and yeah, that, yeah, and that go and that goes for when you make films too. Like, you, yeah. ideally, you know, some people do it for the paycheck. I get that, but some, you know, if you have people that are really passionate about what you're doing, mm-hmm. I think that shows up in, in mm-hmm. the work. And you don't always get it, but I think that like, if you can, it's a nice to have. Certainly, yeah, knowing the space where that your film might fit in. So, mm-hmm. one of the the micro budget features that I that I made uh, when I was first starting. A Korean American story. The writer director was Korean American and his mm-hmm. entire cast was. And so we needed somebody who knew sort of that Korean American sort of Asian American publication space, right? Like mm-hmm. there were certainly incredible publicists who were go- really good at what they did, but that they lacked that specific knowledge that was about the film and where that might have find audiences, readers who were going to be interested in being, like, oh, mm-hmm. I, I heard about this cool title. Sometimes it can be specific. What are some red flags that you would look for? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Or even just like, if I could break down weaknesses of artists, <laughs> I mean, sure. it would be a lot. Oh, this will be, be interesting. Let's go. <laughs> no, no, no. But it's like, it's basically everything that I feel like producers are good at. You know what I mean? Like breaking down the black and white and defining the bottom line and, and defining what that is. But also, you know, like the black and white, when you actually have to come to sign it, I mean, a lot of artists are just like, sure, I'll sign this. They have no idea what they just signed. (laughs) We talked a little bit about distribution and all that fun stuff, but publicists, that's a new kind of area in vain that, um, you know, I I, want to say, I I guess seems like almost a luxury at the, at the micro budget level, (laughs) you know, like to deal with the publicist, they're just like, oh, we don't have budget for that. We, we have enough budget to get this thing made. So you got that. Yeah. It's been a while since I've, I've signed a publicist contract, so I'm trying, yeah. to, I'm trying to think back a little bit. But I think yeah. part of it, too, is, is really to define what the goals are, right, of, of yeah. that. Sort of, you know, in, in that can be broken in, into, like, how, how many placements, if that makes sense? Like, where what are oh. the goals? Where, where are you seeking oh, okay. to place the story, right? Yeah, yeah. Is it going to be the New York times and uh, variety variety or like, yeah. you know, is it, is it trades? Is it, is yeah. it, you know, there's trade, there's a whole thing about trades like variety, Hollywood reporter deadline. Is it sort of general interest kind of reading like something like the New York times mm-hmm. social media is another one that yeah. can also be a specialty too. Right. So I think it's a little bit of like being able to talk with people, get their assessment of your project and then where they think the audience mm-hmm. might be and going from there. But then I think also then defining defining the scope of that. The idea is that if you can sign somebody up to do this, but unless they're actually putting it out into the world, it's not, you know, you can pay for something that you're not really getting. How much of the budget should you reserve for that process? I'm of the opinion, and I think you're gonna get, you probably get a lot of different answers on this. <laughs> I don't think you reserve anything, at least at least in the making of it. Right? Really? I don't think really? so. Really? Nothing for distribution and publicists. Well then what do you do? What like how do you <laughs> what do you do after? Because it, it well, it's built it's built on this idea that what you're looking to do is build the you know, make the best film you can, right? Like put 
would you have into the movie? Oh, 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 oh. Okay. So, so think, no, if you think about it a different way, and this is something that comes up all the time right now with, with COVID, right? Is that, yeah. you know, there, I've had lots of conversations with filmmakers and producers, you know, how much of my budget should I save for, for COVID? You know, and there's like, well, you know, how do you know? Like, in some places, like, well, you don't, right? Your the idea is like, you're trying to, especially if you're looking to be able to then make a sale, mm-hmm. like you want to give yourself, the, the best shot is to make the best movie possible, right? The yeah. other stuff, not to say that you won't have to pay for a publicist or you won't yeah. have to pay for to figure yeah. out how people to help you distribute the movie. Yeah. But in some ways, like, you know, it doesn't matter if the movie itself isn't good. The better your film is, the more opportunities will be open. Put all of your resources into like what's actually shown on screen and then you'll be right. Like, like if I'm if I'm having to make a trade-off to say, oh, I need to protect for a publicist, but it means I can't have something that will add value and scope to my mm-hmm. movie. It means right? that I like, can't like, have I, this actor. I can't have this actor or I have to lose a, lose a day of shooting. That's, mm-hmm. that's not equivalent, but you know what I mean? Like yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Choose the thing that makes you, your movie bigger and better. You deal with the other part later. You'll have to, but if you don't have a movie that people don't want to be involved with because it's not what you hoped it to Up be, to par. Mm-hmm. yeah, then you're sort of stuck. No, that makes a lot of sense. What gear or gadget uh, is an old reliable for you or resource? Something that you keep on going back to. I mean, resource, I, I use IMDb Pro mm-hmm. every day, all day. It's prob- I'm sure that's probably been talked about a lot, but in terms of having sort of like the encyclopedia of the industry, in terms of reference, in terms of being able to figure out who people are, where they're coming from, their experience, it's, it's mm-hmm. to me, is like an invaluable tool. Yeah. I think going along with that, the, the resources, frankly, like the biggest resources is my network, right? And that sounds silly, but the idea of like, mm-hmm. Filmmaking, there's so much to know. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. so having other people that, you know, whose opinions you trust and, and that sort of thing you can go to, whether it's like, hey, you've worked with this person, or you know how to get connect me to the person that knows this person or that yeah. thing. Yeah. Or yeah, just yeah. like, hey, I need that gut check. Or yeah. like, I'm going to bounce this off you. Like, it's not terribly cutting edge or cool. Like, in a way, like, it's it's super old fashioned, right? In that, in that way. Like, but, it, but it's that thing of like, it's all people yeah. like, when it comes down to this. 100%. And probably one of the more unique answers that I've had to this. And the network, that is not something that anybody has ever answered before. It's awesome. The thing I have from having made all these movies is I have all those people that I've worked with and you find the people, there are people that I call and I'm still in touch with from, from those movies, you know, that I've made years ago because yeah. we have become a resource for each other. Absolutely. For the revolutionizing how you work, then, is that also, I mean, no, I'm going to ask for your, your resource. <laughs> um, uh, now your favorite new school, how you re- revolutionize your work, uh, the newest resources. So many of the tools I have that enable remote work now. I think there were versions of this stuff more than two years ago, but really has come into the fore now. So like, you know, remote watching feeds from set, remote, you know, mm. remote dailies, this kind of stuff that, that I feel like has allowed the level of sort of collaboration where we previously were like, I don't know, I have to get into the room and do it with you in person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's, there's a lot of that now that has, I think it really is only, there are tools and necessity. It has allowed us to continue to make movies since March of 2020. Yeah. Uh, but we've, that's all stuff that's kind of been figured out on on the fly. So uh, wrapping up, what questions should I have asked you? Where is indie film going next? Right, like I think that that's such an interesting Ooh. question of which I don't don't know the oh, answer to. Oh, come on, come on! There's been such momentous change, right? Obviously, you know, when yeah. you have, you know, just in terms of like going back to what you're first asking about with the distribution places, like all of these places 
there are a lot of, a whole lot of places that didn't exist as, as places for distribution, even a few years ago, mm -hmm. right? The place I work for, you know, a lot of, a lot of the other streaming services now that, you know, a lot of them are attached to legacy studios, mm -hmm. but, but that model of saying, I'm going to give, you know, I can push something out and it goes everywhere in the world to anybody who's got a, a subscription that, that, that's relatively new. It's, it's, it's kind of deceptive because it's so ubiquitous, right? But mm -hmm. like, what is that doing for distribution? Not at the indie level, what is that distri doing the distribution at sort of further on when you're more, more into the studio side? All of that stuff create, sort of creates interesting ideas about sort of upstream or downstream opportunity. Like, you know, that the ecosystem is all affected by itself. The marketplace has really changed. Just even like, you know, Sundance having to be virtual. If you listened to Sundance talk about that, where they're like, you know, hey, like, We've had more people subscribe and be able to attend, quote unquote, attend Sundance in the last few years virtually than we've ever had come in the door in Park City, right? And yeah. what is that? What does yeah. that do in terms of like the democratization of, of audiences and, and consumption, right? You don't yeah. have to be able to like pay to get on the plane to get to a condo in Park City, and you know, mm -hmm. like that whole thing, right? Like, yeah. so I think it's this really interesting moment of transition. Besides all of these different streaming platforms, you have new new opportunities even in social media too because you know i i get the quibby didn't go very far <laughs> but <laughs> but i remember seeing trailers and what have you on tiktok and i'm just like man when is it going to be that like there there's going to be a netflix sponsored series that is you know totally shot for for TikTok or something because they used to do that for some things like on Instagram you know and they you had uh WB had had done this uh web series and you know like they're they're trying all this short form content and you know kind of wondering where it was going to go but yeah with Quibi I mean like that I was thinking like oh yeah that's what's going to take off right there right <laughs> who knew <laughs> one thing that's interesting though is that with the old styles of, of how content as we'll call it like was was shown you had to yeah. fit really prescriptive formats right you were a 120 minute feature you were a mm -hmm. 60 minute dramatic episode or a 30 minute sitcom episode right yeah and if you weren't those things if that wasn't your story you were kind of you're kind of stuck yeah right or or even or even or even within that right like if you mm -hmm. were going to be on tv well you better have 22 episodes or 24 episodes or whatever the network standard was to say you had a season of something right mm -hmm. now it's like okay i've got my series is six episodes or my series is eight episodes or, yeah. you know, or, or like if you even watch the stuff that's on streaming now, it's like, okay, but this episode is 53 minutes and the next episode is a hundred and is an hour and five minutes, right? Like yeah. the, there's so much more flexibility to be like, okay, what is your story and what is it, what does it actually need? And I feel like that's actually kind of freeing for an artist to be like, you know, we're not constrained by 30 minute or 50 minute or, you know, what have you. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thanks so much for sharing your insight. We really appreciate it. Totally. Of course. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this interview, follow us right here and on Instagram. Ask us questions and check out more episodes at thepracticalfilmmaker.com. Be well and God bless. We'll see you next time on The Practical Filmmaker.